What a glorious passage. What an absolutely fantastic passage. The Apostle John is often called the Apostle of Love. You can see why. Because in his gospel, the gospel of John, he explains the path to heaven. In this letter, he explains how to enjoy the journey. It's a journey of love. According to verse 7, love comes from God. If you're a Christian, love is what you do. If you don't, you're not. So the first thing we need to talk about this morning is the whole concept of love. Because you can't deny there's a whole lot of confusion about it. People use the word love to describe everything. I love hot dogs. I love my fried chicken. I love my job. Or as is often said in our house, I love the Green Bay Packers. What in the world does all that mean? We can't possibly mean we love an athletic team more than our spouse. Or the same as our spouse. (laughs) Well, I hope it's not. Anyway, it can't possibly mean that we have a romantic relationship or attachment to an entire organization. I don't care how much you love your job. We hopefully don't have a love affair with food. So it's better that we understand the biblical concept of love. What are we talking about this morning? The biblical concept of love is not romantic. The biblical concept of love is not emotional. It's really not emotional at all. At least not at first it's not. So I'm going to tell you something I want you to write down in your notes. Perhaps in the margin of your Bible, I want you to write this down. Put it somewhere where you'll see it a lot. It's that important. And the Bible has different levels of love. We know about them, agape love, erotic love, phileo love, okay? What I'm going to tell you is relevant to all three. Write this down, please. Biblical love is always acting in the best interest of others. Always. With everyone. Even people you don't know. Wherever you are. Whatever the circumstances. Acting in the best interests of the other person at all times and in all ways. Because doing this reflects God's love, God's love for us. He always acts in our best interests. Because surely this type of love is his will, and he always wants the best for us. Now, when I was a teenager, I was raised in a mainline denomination, and I always went to church, but I never understood anything. Because I knew the Lord's Prayer, I knew the Apostles' Creed, I knew the Ten Commandments, during communion, they'd handed out a little thing, and the pastor's going to ask you this question. This is your answer. So we'd stand up and we'd read off our answer. I didn't understand a thing. And whenever I was challenged to commit myself to God, I held back because it seemed scary. I was literally afraid of God's will. I thought to myself, look what happened to Jesus. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he was crucified. I mean, really, it was all downhill from there. So I said to myself, and I didn't understand anything, I was convinced that if I committed myself to God, my life would be a horror show. I mean, really. I'd have to go to some advanced highfalutin university and, and study nuclear physics and advanced trigonometry and Latin, with a little bit of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics thrown in there and statistical analysis, 
Then I would have to marry the ugliest girl in the world. And we would have 13 short children, immaculately. And they'd all look like her. Then I'd I'd fail all out of school and I'd have to be sent as a missionary to a cannibal tribe in the Congo where I would be completely ineffective and eventually digested. And as I was sinking into a pot of oil over a boring, boiling fire, roaring fire, I would say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be. Now, it's been decades since then. Uh, There are a lot more miles on my odometer, and I have a lot more past than future. But I have learned some life's lessons, and I believe this is one of them. God's will is the best thing that could possibly happen. The best solution to any problem, the perfect answer to any question, the finest possible destination of any journey, The best thing that could happen. And many people, when they pray, end up something like this. We pray in your will. Amen. Sounds good. But what they really might be praying is something like this. God, you're going to do whatever you want to do anyway, so feel free to disregard everything I just said and do whatever you'd like. So like I say, that sounds good to pray that way, but it can be completely lacking in hope and faith. And personally, I think it's a great thing to say at the end of a prayer, but can I suggest a better way to express it? How about this? Try this. Lord, this is what I want. This is what I would like to have happen. Unless you've got something better in mind. And if you want to do something even better than what I'm asking for, please, Lord, do that. We pray for your will. Amen. Now, why pray like that? Because we know for certain that God loves us. It means he will always act in our best interest. Because God's love is biblical love. The Apostle John tells us in his letter here that if we don't love people like that, we don't know God. Why? Because God is love. It doesn't say God is loving. It says, God is love. Think about this. A lot of us don't think we're very good at evangelism. We don't quite know what to say. We can't pull out our Bible and and tell people about the passages. But think about this. When you share love with someone, you share God with them. It's like what St. Francis of Assisi said. Tell everyone about Jesus. Use words when necessary. And John goes further. He says, if you don't love others, you don't know God. Now that sounds harsh, but is it really? John would never be harsh. Remember, John is the apostle of love. He's relentless. Love is his true passion. Comes back to it again and again. We should love each other because God loves us. We should live in that love, and God will live in us. And how can we say we love God whom we haven't seen when we don't love others that we have See, worse, if you hate other people, are we really lying about our love to God? In verse 21, John presents it as an absolute command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And the basis for all that is verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. 
He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So let's take a a closer look at God's love for us. And then we'll follow that with some thoughts about our love for him. First, God's love for us. We love to sing about it. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. So first of all, God sent his son, his only son, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He came to die so that we could live. Live victoriously. Temporarily in this world and eternally in the next. He didn't do it because we loved him. Just the opposite. We didn't. He did it because he loved us and he was acting in our best interests. Next, God sent his Holy Spirit to live within us. That's God literally in residence in your life. The very personality of Christ. Whenever the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, it never says it. It always says he. It makes every Christian and you, each one of us, a temple of God. Next, God's the Holy Spirit within you. Think of that. The Holy Spirit within you is equivalent to the Shekinah glory of God in the temple that the Jews constructed. What power that provides. What guidance and strength and wisdom. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, yours now, within you, and me. Next, God sent his word, the perfect presentation of everything that we can know about him in this world, a literal love letter from heaven. It's all we need. It's a copy to cope with the past, to cope with the present, To cope with the future, Bible, B-I-L-E, basic instruction before leaving earth. If there is any hope in this downtrodden world, so sinful and and, and black-hearted, it is found in the pages of Scripture. And if we neglect it, we choose not to unwrap the most valuable gift that mankind has ever received. Third, God gave us eternal life. And I, I want you to notice that all of these gifts that I, we're talking about this morning are all in the past tense. These are things that God has already given to us. He's already done it. You already have eternal life. You are living it right now. It's never going to end. So why don't you live it in love so that others will notice That as they watch your way that you live your life, they see that you are in Christ. Then, fourth, God gives us confidence. Verses 17 and 18. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
living a life of love gives you complete confidence. Is it possible to live a life without fear? Yes! Personal note, again. When I was young, I was afraid of everything. It was just the way I was brought up. To me, the solution seemed to be to have more confidence. Hey, guys, did anybody do other Charles Atlas exercises when you were a kid? They call them isometric exercises. And you had one muscle against another one, one muscle against another one, one muscle against another one. Isometric exercises. I wanted to be Charles Atlas so I wouldn't have sand kicked in my face at the beach. And I thought to myself, if I could just be more confident, I wouldn't be afraid. And the Apostle John tells us that that is absolutely not the case. The opposite of fear is not confidence. The opposite of fear is love. Think about it. You can't possibly fear anything or anyone that you love. You can certainly be aware of problems. You should deal with danger. You should do everything you can to correct bad situations. You shouldn't let anybody walk all over you. There are many things you can't do, but being afraid is not one of them because of of love. Your love. Faith and fear cannot coexist. What a gift God has given us. Now, all of that only begins to scratch the surface of God's love for us if we could just understand it, if we could just accept it and apply it, if we could just live accordingly. We would never be the same. This church would never be the same. This town would never, ever be the same. Our city, our state, our nation would never be the same. And one thing for sure, God would love to see that happen. And there's more, of course, but now we need to talk about our love for God. How can we best express it? Now, this shouldn't be as hard as it is. First, we should love his son, Jesus Christ. He is the full human expression of God. He is simultaneously all God and all man. Can you imagine the incredible sacrifices that Jesus made to become like us? Have you ever thought of what he left behind to come here? The power of God, the glories of heaven, the majesty of his world, the worship of angels. For what? To be a newborn laid in a feeding trough? To experience a lifetime of poverty? To live under a brutal foreign dictatorship? To be misunderstood and vilified all his life? To be branded as an illegitimate child? To be unfairly accused? To be convicted by a corrupt, illegal court proceeding? To be crucified like a criminal and to suffer unimaginably? And to be buried in someone else's tomb? Have you thought about that? Because it looks on the face of it like he traded everything for nothing. One theologian referred to it as Christ's magnificent condescension. And why? For your salvation and mine. It was in your best interest. He did it for you and me. You are that important to him. Individually, you specifically, with all your sins, your warts, your bumps, your bruises, your failures, your weaknesses, your past. Because Jesus loves you. 
biblically. He doesn't see you as you are or as you were. He sees you as what you will be. In Christ, when you stand before him, you will be like him, perfect, willing, and able, and eager to spend an eternity with him. If God loves you like that, love him back. He has withheld nothing from you. Do the same. Don't withhold anything from him. And second... Of course, the next way you can love God is to love the rest of his children. We're all the same family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Our loving Heavenly Father wants us to live in peace. He wants his family to be forgiving and patient and joyful and hopeful, all of it under an umbrella of love. The end result is not for you to feel something. It is for you to do something. Biblical love is an action word. It is not a noun. In your bulletin, I've listed a whole bunch of practical ways you can show your love for God by loving others. I'd like you to take a look at it. Remember, the biblical definition of love is to act in the best interest of others. So do what's best for them. doesn't matter whether you feel affection toward them or not. The circumstances don't matter. The seriousness or the lack of seriousness doesn't matter. Their gratitude or the lack of their gratitude doesn't matter. I want you to keep that bulletin insert. I want you to put it where you'll see it often. And if you think of things to add, write them in there. I guarantee you that living like this will be tremendously rewarding and tremendously challenging. It's like the list of Christ's commands I I gave you a few weeks ago. All of them are simple. None of them are easy. This list is the same. Now, you might be surprised to see the phrase, be sexually pure. It's there because our society has such a warped view of love. People actually think that all sex is an act of love. It's not. So I I have a special message. Actually, I'm pleading to all the young people who hear this message, in person or on the computer or whenever, I urge you, I beg you, be sexually pure. Why? Because to abstain from sex outside of marriage is a wonderful act of love for others. You are not hurting the other person, saddling him with a her with a guilt, a life of guilt and shame and regret. You are not hurting their, their future spouse or your future spouse by forcing them to deal with their spouse's prior sexual activity. It's why premarital sex offenses often lead to divorce. By abstaining, you help the other person avoid the trauma it would cause with family and friends. You avoid conceiving a child who would have to deal all through life with the consequences of your action. If you're a young man, you will avoid consigning the woman to be an unwed mother. It is the surest route to lifelong poverty in the United States today. So hear me when I say this. Abstaining from sex outside of marriage is a wonderful act of love. 
And if you've already started down this path, stop immediately. There is no better thing you can do for yourself or for those you love. And that's just one thing on the list. Simple. It isn't easy at all. So check out the whole list, which brings us to our final topic, the life of faith. As the book of Hebrews tells us, faith is the evidence of things unseen. You don't see it. It's only reflected in the events of life. Your ears don't hear it, only in the words of others. Your body won't feel it. Your emotions may not feel it. But it is the key to the Christian life. So my definition of faith is simple. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I trust him. The Apostle John has an even simpler definition. Look at the last few verses of our passage. Chapter 5, 1 through 4. What is the key to loving God? What is the key to carrying out his commands? What is actually the love of God? How can it be possible for us to overcome the world? How will we ever see victory? Well, listen to this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the, love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So all of these blessings, according to verse 5, are the result of believing that Jesus is the Son of God. If that is all the faith you've got, trust me, trust the Apostle John, that is all the faith you need. Jesus was crucified because he was the perfect sacrifice. He claimed to be it. Jesus was resurrected because of the power he claimed to possess. Jesus ascended into heaven to prove he's the king that he claimed to be. If you surrender to him, you are covered by his sacrifice. If you surrender to him, you have access to his power. If you surrender to him, you have the privilege of his high position. All that through faith. All that from receiving the greatest act of love in the entire history of the universe. The presence of Jesus Christ in this earth and his spirit within you. From a loving God forever acting in your best interests, love him back and love all his children. Let's pray. Lord, you are love. You encourage us to love. You command us to love. You equip us to love. And every day, You surround us with all sorts of opportunities to love. Help us to obey your command. Beloved, let us love one another. And we pray for your will in Jesus' name. Amen.